And we're going to be talking today about fire. When I recorded this interview that you're about to hear just two weeks ago, fires were burning all over California as well as many other states and in other countries as well. And there was smoke in the air here in New Mexico from prescribed burns. Now people are picking up the pieces, and I think it's actually a good time to talk about fire and try to get a broad view. There's a lot of ways to think about fire. It can be monstrous and destructive, and it can also be beneficial, and a lot of the time it's both, which is confusing. To help us understand the deeper significance of fire in our landscapes, I invited Rod Lynn, a scientist at the Computational Earth Science Group at Los Alamos National Laboratory, and Kyle Dickman, who's a journalist and author of the book On the Burning Edge. That's a book about the 2013 Yarnell Hill fire in which 19 firefighters lost their lives. Kyle is also a former hotshot firefighter. Hotshots, if you haven't heard of them, are these incredibly strong, well-trained firefighters who work in teams of 20 people and go all over the country dropping into dangerous fire areas in order to contain the burns. He wrote an article in Popular Science magazine this past summer called How a Wildfire Kicked Up a 45,000-Foot Column of Flames, and it features the work of Rod Lynn. Right at the beginning of our conversation, I read an excerpt of this article. An intense and sudden force, second in power to a nuclear explosion, able to boil streamwater, melt dirt, and crack boulders. This one, this fire, would span a horrific 45,000-foot furnace of smoke and soot, spin up 400-foot-high tornadoes, generate powerful updrafting and downdrafting winds, create lightning high in the plume, and send embers flying almost 25 miles away. This is a description of the less conscious fire of 2011. First of all, did each of you witness this fire? Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that day, that night. So from my perspective, you could see the plume develop in the afternoon, and, and as it got larger and larger, it was towering over the town of Los Alamos. And having gone through the Cerro Grande, a lot of residents, including myself, were quite aware of what the potential was for impacting our own lives, impacting the town, impacting the lab. So the awareness was quite high within town. And what did it look like? What did it feel like? I mean, I don't think a nuclear explosion is too far off on the truth. I mean, these big plumes, that's what they look like. They look like mushroom clouds. And actually, the strange thing about Los Conchas is I don't think it really did look like that because this fire was actually wind-driven. So there was really strong winds that had kicked up sometime maybe around noon. And I was in Santa Fe at the time, and I re- and I just finished fighting fire a few years earlier, and I was still in a sort of mindset where I got really excited whenever I saw wildfires. And so I drove out to La Tierra, and I stood up there, and this was actually late at night, but you could see miles away just this strip of fire. Those were probably somewhere between 30 and 100 foot tall flame lengths just ripping down these canyons at night. And I am sort of embarrassed to admit it now, but at the time I was like, this is supernatural. I mean, I can't imagine like witnessing a cooler thing. And um, in hindsight, like that fire was totally destructive. I mean, the, the landscape around Los Alamos is forever changed because of it. This fire was incredibly destructive, and we're hearing about so many incredibly destructive, the word used is catastrophic, wildfires. 
that are different in very important ways from the kinds of fires that have been naturally burning in the forests really since there have been forests and since there's been lightning. What is the difference? I would step back and say that we're seeing some fires that are different and many fires that are not. People look at the West and they look at the U.S. as as sort of one firescape, but in fact there are many different fire regimes in many different places. And so in places like the Southwest, what was typical was low-intensity fires at high frequencies. In places like California and Napa Valley or in Southern California, the reason that we're seeing these really high-intensity fires is because there's a ton of brush out there. That brush is always burned, and these sparks just happen to be coinciding with wind events. So if you look back over time, I mean, when do the catastrophic fires burn? They burn whenever you have weather that aligns with the fire, which is exactly what we saw here in Los Conchas. And in California, they name those winds, whether they call them the Diablo winds or the Santa Ana winds, as these hot, dry, strong winds that tend to blow hard and blow during the fire season. I think the other thing that makes them be viewed as catastrophic is the fact that people are in these areas where fires have always burned, but if there are not people there, then it's not really they're not so catastrophic. Yeah. Right. And so there's that kind of, like, if people hadn't been there, it would have been a normal part of how the ecosystem manages itself. Like, what do fires do for the ecosystem under normal circumstances, ecologically? So when you don't have fires, you tend to get an overgrowth of of what we call understory or midstory vegetation, which is the oak brush or the accumulation of needles and litter on the ground that creates a more intense fire on the ground, which is actually what then allows it to get up into the crown of the trees and creates the potential for a crown fire. Explain what a crown fire is. There's two different kinds of crown fires. One is what's called passive, which means a very intense ground fire is burning underneath the canopy and torching trees as it moves along. And when it starts to move from crown of one tree to the crown of another tree, that's called an active crown fire. And so those are the ones that tend to move very fast and are nearly impossible to fight from a firefighter's standpoint. I think the irony is that like the, the fires that we would like to see stopped, the ones that we want to fight, are the ones that we cannot succeed yeah. in fighting. I mean, like these fires in Napa Valley, we want to stop that fire, but they can't. I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to put a bunch of firefighters in harm's way, and they are going to die if they do that. The other thing I was thinking about is the term catastrophic fire. I I actually think of it more like a climate change fire. I mean, I think of these fires up, I can't remember the name of the town up in Canada, but... Fort McMurray. Fort McMurray. I mean, that, I think you would describe that as a catastrophic fire. How many people died? I don't remember. How many houses burned? I don't remember. But if you look at that fire and its effects on the landscape, I think that I would feel comfortable describing that as truly catastrophic because it's outside of the norm of whatever was happening within nature. I, I think that's a fair assessment, I think. And you could think of it as an evolution in the conditions under which fires are burning, both the weather, but also maybe the continual overstocking of fuel, uh, vegetation. Listening to you guys, I'm thinking maybe there's two different kinds of catastrophes that we're talking about when we talk about catastrophic fires. One is a fire that really harms the landscape, whereas natural wildfires that don't burn quite as high and as hot end up benefiting the landscape in the long run, even after a few years. That's a non-catastrophic fire. But like less conscious fire, that burned 
that forest really to a crisp and we don't know how long if ever it's going to take till that ecosystem comes back so that is a catastrophe for the ecosystem the other kind of a catastrophe is like in california for people Mm -hmm. so you've got fires that on their own might have been perfectly good for the ecosystem but the problem is there were wineries there were houses there were people and so it was the human catastrophe that goes back to something kyle said earlier which is that fires are different in different fire regimes in different places i mean there are places where stand replacing fires which is a fire that burns through a forest consuming everything in its path in some places that's the way fire has always been Mm -hmm. And they didn't have these mild surface fires. A lot of the ecosystems in Canada were stand-replacing fires. And when you have those kinds of fires, what happens to those forests in the years thereafter? So there's a natural succession that happens after that disturbance, namely fire, comes through. You have a succession of new plants. Sometimes it's a series of species of, of plant that comes in. Maybe it's the same species that was there before the fire but it regenerates over time and there's a succession. Maybe it's something like aspen and then conifer forests. But the other kinds of ecosystems, some of the ecosystems here in the Southwest, some of the ecosystems in the Southeastern US, historically they were believed to have had these frequent low intensity fires. We're working an awful lot with folks in the Southeast who are working very hard to keep fire as a part of their ecosystems. They'd like to burn a piece of land every two to four years. And they do. I mean, which is pretty amazing. I mean, that's something that we would like to do and are incapable of in the Southwest. Well, we're we're super nervous about it. We've had a few bad events, but you add in topography Mm -hmm. and it becomes more challenging. So you have these, what you're talking about in the Southeast, low intensity ground fires. You have these- That are purposefully set. Purposefully set. And maybe at another time in our ecological history, they were set by lightning. Then you have these stand-replacing fires where the soil remains able to grow trees, seeds survive, and forests grow up after they're burned. And then you've got, less conscious, what's left? I think it's worth remembering that landscapes, environments, these are not static things. What we value is forests that look a certain way. We value the forest that, like it looks like in my backyard, big, evenly spaced trees here in the southwest. And historically, it looks like that because of regularly occurring fires. But in the absence of that, you create fires that destroy forests. And so I think unless we reintroduce fire and unless we actually are more proactive about managing the landscape, what's going to happen is that we're going to have more fires like Las Conchas or more fires like the Wallow or the Little Bear. I mean, it's not every year, but we see these fires with increasing frequency, and that's because of things like fire suppression, and that's exasperated by climate change. Uh, this is sick, but I guess get used to it. I think we're going to see more Las Conchas, not less. I think there's a growing realization that a lot of our forests are not in a healthy state. And there's a lot of science, forestry, and ecology that's going into trying to understand what is the healthy state. The federal government is putting more and more emphasis on, can we be proactive with fire? Can we think about how to get things to a healthy state, as opposed to just chase the big fires that we can't stop? Mm -hmm. It's a big task. You, Rodlin, do fire modeling. You've been doing it for over 20 years. 
first of all, when you're modeling fires, what are the tools that you're using to make models? And then what are the questions you're asking? In general, fire models are developed based on a, a variety of different methodologies. One methodology is to burn fires in a wind tunnel or out on the landscape and simply watch them, calculate how fast they're moving, somehow characterize the environment that they were in, the wind speed, the fuel moisture, etc. That would be an empirical fire model. Another approach to fire modeling would be if you back up and try to think about what are the basic underlying kernels of the phenomena, like the heat transfer between foliage and the flame or the air around it, the physics that drives moisture off from the vegetation, the combustion process itself. If you take all those underlying nuggets and start to package them together in a consistent way, then you can develop something that's a much more complex and much more computationally intensive model, but it might be able to represent fires beyond just those that we've seen in the past or taken data in the past. Are you able to take data during these big fires? So that's another really big challenge. Uh, taking data during these big fires is not usually the priority of those that are <laughs> dealing with the fires, and for good reason. There are those that say, well, why don't we go out there and take data? And, and the problem is the logistics of taking data when other people are trying to fight fires and trying to fly aircraft around fires is very problematic. So, for instance, people like to talk about using drones on fires to take measurements. That's really problematic for the air attack folks or the people that are flying around taking the assessment. They don't want those drones in the same airspace. It might be worth saying that the modeling that Rob and his team do is very, very fine scale. They're using models to figure out the processes that fires burn on a landscape. It's like incredibly computationally intensive right. science, and they can do it because of the tools that they have here at Los Alamos. But when people think about the models, it's worth knowing that this isn't the stuff that firefighters use on the fire line to, to, to plug it in and say, okay, the fire is going to spread two miles. This is the stuff that they spend hundreds and thousands of hours looking at and come up with these just I mean honestly they're totally beautiful amazing models they're pretty mesmerizing actually when you're done done with it but it but it is different they're they're different things Kyle's point is exactly correct the models that are used in the field by the fire managers are these empirically based tools that run very quickly on say laptops whereas the more physics based or process based models those are typically run on high-performance computers and are much slower than real-time. So you can get a second of simulation time out of a minute's worth of calculation. So it doesn't help you get ahead of the fire at all. But that's how we learn more about fires. And those are the kinds of modeling tools that you can combine with experiments to create a better understanding of what really needs to be in the simple models the fast-running models that can be used to help the firefighters in the field. Right. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. I mean, the kind of modeling you do, does it eventually help people on the ground? Does it have that practical application? So we are working with the U.S. Forest Service to take what we find and feed the development of fast-running models. What have you learned that you didn't know before through the process of this very computationally intensive fire modeling that you do? We've learned a lot about the fundamentals of how fire spreads, for instance. 
it's really interesting because there's been some really great experimental research by other researchers that has come to similar realizations about the fire spread. And it's nice that the computations and the experiments can be blended together to give a, a more complete picture. It gives you confidence in the in the models, and the models can explore things that you can't do experiments very easily. Yeah, you don't want to be burning a thousand acres. Exactly. So if you learn more about what are the mechanisms by which topography, for instance, changes the spread rate, fire typically spreads faster up hills, then if you understand the fundamental basis for that, you can make sure that's captured in simpler models that could be used in the future on an operational line. Are watersheds part of your model? Like what happens to the watershed post-fire when the soil is so changed? What happens to streams and rivers in the vicinity, things like that? There is research at Los Alamos that's tied to that exact topic, watershed security. And a piece of that is the possible impacts of disturbances like fire. For instance, what happens if you get one of these disturbances in the Santa Fe watershed? Would you be better off to have a low-intensity prescribed fire or to wait for the lightning strike that might cause a stand-replacing fire? Or would you rather get in with mechanical thinning and remove trees? So there is a whole science behind thinking about the trade-offs of these different kinds of disturbances that could impact watersheds. Here in northern New Mexico, and you and I, Kyle, have talked about this before, because of many years of fire suppression, which has been a policy that was put in place kind of in collaboration with the timber industry, is that right? Mm -hmm. The number of trees per acre is a lot greater than it used to be. Can you give us a sort of comparison of where we are now compared to before we started actively suppressing fires as a society? 20 trees per acre is what it was historically, and I think we're now in the 300 plus in many places. So so that's huge. That's a big difference. A big Does difference. that affect the health of the trees themselves? I mean, they're all competing yeah. for the same water. Yeah, yeah, I mean, think about sticking 300 straws in a milkshake versus 20. I mean, I'd rather be one of those 20. Right. And so when you talk about land management, one of the things people do is prescribe burns. You're also talking about mechanical thinning, meaning cutting down extra trees. I'd love to hear both of your views about what good management here in northern New Mexico would look like. I think Santa Fe Watershed's probably pretty well managed, um, having been in there illegally. <laughs> it looks great. I mean, it looks really good. And I think that's because we live in the south. We live in the desert. People know that you know we value water. We need it. And so we know that if we lose that watershed... Santa Fe loses its drinking water. So I think for the most part, the national forest managers here are very careful with that. And I think you're seeing a combination of mechanical thinning and prescribed burning. And the result is a, is a really healthy forest where you need a healthy forest most. So now I don't know what the acreage is on the Santa Fe watershed, but to take that and to scale it up to the entire Southwest and only federal lands is it's just it's not scalable i mean that's a very labor intensive process so i think that the um, santa fe national forest deserves a pat on the back for that i guess the short answer is that i think a combination of mechanical thinning even hand thinning from fire crews who are not fighting fire plus prescribed burns would would result in a um, lower intensity wildfires do they let people go in and cut firewood that seems like that'd be a win-win 
I don't think it's probably it's probably not done on a scale that has much of an impact. And the other part of that is what kind of trees are people taking when they're cut looking for firewood? And those might be different than the kind of trees that are uh, most likely to combust in a wildfire. And I don't well, actually know I, that. I think that's a great point. I think that a lot of times you'll end up with the trees that need to go are more the small trees. You end up with, with what they call these dog hair thickets of trees where the trees have overgrown. There's a lot of competition, so they're not the best firewood trees or, right. or lumber trees for sure. And so what do you do with those small diameter trees if you go in and thin them out? I think it kind of boils down to incentives. There's this weird relationship between fire and logging, right? And so the, the, the rise of fire suppression comes about in 1910 at about the same time that you had these overzealous industries that were just raping the landscape of trees, cutting everything that they could cut. And then you had a fire in 1910, 70 people died. But the Forest Service Rangers were the only people fighting it. And so Congress, which had up until that point been pretty pro-industry and was actually starving the Forest Service of money, actually sunk a bunch of money into the Forest Service primarily so they could fight fires. I think the irony of that now is that, you know, a hundred and some odd years later, we no longer really have, we definitely do not have a robust logging industry almost anywhere in the U.S. And I think it would be naive to say that reintroducing logging would by itself would reduce the risk of catastrophic wildfires. But I think that a conversation needs to happen between industry, firefighters, and environmentalists. Because if we value these landscapes, and we do, we all love our public lands, and we have to start managing them proactively in order to protect them. And frankly, that I think that means incentivizing loggers to get back into some of these unnaturally dense forests. Or at least incentivizing some industry that could take the right kinds of trees. And yeah. I think that's a lot of the cost is, even after you cut a tree down, how do you take the branches and needle material, which aren't of interest to the loggers at right. all, what do you do with that? And there's bio, uh, what do you call those? The firms that use all of the, basically the overburden from that stuff to generate energy. I mean, that, that's biomass. biomass, burners, things right. like that. I would love to see industries like that subsidized by Congress. So instead of spending... 10, 12 billion dollars a year fighting fires. What if we took some of that money and said, let's get some industries going that we can incentivize it? And to be clear, I'm not, I'm from the Northwest. I'm familiar with the look and feel of clear cuts. I'm not a fan of them, but uh, I'm also familiar with the view out my back window here, which is not what it looked like 25 years ago. And I'm sure that I'm like many people in Los Alamos and I, I miss those trees, you know? When you say the look out your back window is not what it was like 20 years ago, what do you mean? I just mean that the, Rod and I live in Los Alamos, and we, I don't think we've even mentioned the Cerro Grande fire, but there are basically two big fires in the last 25, 20 years now that have really changed this town. And the first one was a, a prescribed burn that actually escaped, and it burned a lot of acres at high intensity and a lot of houses. And the result is that <laughs> the birthplace of the atomic age looks a little bit like a nuclear weapon went off in it, you know? <laughs> When you do prescribe burns, how do they compare to natural burns? Do they, I mean, okay, this is a case gone out of control, but when they work, do they accomplish the same thing? Are they done during lightning season when they would naturally happen? So what season they occur is certainly a, a big question because the season which they might have occurred naturally under healthy forest conditions might not be the season that uh, we can pull off a low-intensity fire 
nowadays because the forests are overgrown. In the southeast, where they have been aggressively prescribed burning for a much longer time, they burn almost year-round. They have a lot of practices and skills that they have when they put fire on the landscape to manage the intensity of the fire. It's a little easier to do there because of the topography. It's flat. Yeah, it's flat. So it's a little bit more of a challenge out in the west. So you can't do it in the middle of July because although that's when you're having thunderstorms naturally, if you did it then, it's hot, it's dry, the forests are overgrown, and so it could get out of control? Yeah, I think if you did it in the middle of June here when when we would naturally have fires, your chances of just causing a catastrophic fire are huge. So when do they do them? Now. September, yeah. October, November. Shoulder seasons, typically. Fire managers talk about it in terms of burn windows. So you only want to light fires. I mean, you have to, like, you, they want a certain result. They want to see a certain um, reduction of vegetation in the landscape. And so that they, the way that they look at it is what's the temperature? What's the fuel moisture? What's the wind speed? And so that they, they and they're only going to burn when they think they have a pretty good grasp on what it is today and what it's going to be in three or four days. Do they take into account the animals living in the forest when they're mating, hibernating, being born, that kind of stuff? They do with threatened and endangered species, definitely. T&Es for sure, but otherwise deer, elk, or no, I'm sure they don't. And the thought is that historically, 200 years ago, those low-intensity fires would have been moving through the landscape and the animals, they could adapt. I mean, the trees were fire-adapted. I think you could make the case that the animals needed as much as the trees. Really? Sure. These are systems. I mean, fire in the Southwest is a critical, essential part of this system. Everything that is down here and every living piece of it, it needs it. The classic example of this is sequoias in California, in Sequoia National Park. So in the 1960s, that what they were finding is they weren't seeing any new sprouts in the sequoia stands, and nobody could understand why. And then eventually there were some ecologists there, and I don't know if they were fire ecologists at the time, but they figured out, oh, well, what's missing? Fire's missing. So they set a fire in there. And, they, and what happened is the irony is, of it is they had set it, and they set it at the wrong time, and so this fire in Sequoia National Park, one of our national treasures, torched out all these beautiful ancient trees and everybody was unbelievably upset with the park service because they said you're killing our national treasures and the irony was when spring came around there was dog-haired thickets on all of these trees because sequoias are fire adapted species they need the heat of the fire to actually drop the seeds so this fire comes through and there's like thousands of sequoia saplings and that's one example of this wonderful species that we all love so much. But there's examples of that in the pinelands in New Jersey of, of a sage grouse or a grouse or something. That the red-cockaded woodpecker in the southeast needs a certain mid-story and canopy balance to survive and flourish. And it's a threatened endangered species. So they actually do a lot of their burning with the idea of how are they increasing populations or increasing the viability of the habitat for Things like red cockaded woodpeckers. And it's super cool because you restore fire and then in the process you restore all of these species. It's sort of like eye-rollingly obvious when you think about it from an ecology perspective. Not that I'm an ecologist, but like you need it, right? And so you take it out and that your forest gets unhealthy and you say, why is this one species dying? And then you put it back in and you see an immediate recovery of the species. I bet that for land managers, seeing those sort of results, I cannot imagine a more exciting outcome and saving the species. Yeah. There's actually a, a whole culture in the southeast of 
people that are pro putting fire on the landscape because of its impact on game bird species, for instance. And it's having those open landscapes that were historically there is a crucial part of that. I did the story for Rolling Stone a few years ago about the Pinelands. And the Pinelands are this 50,000 acres of scrub pines in New Jersey. John like McPhee, the Pine Barrens. Pine Barrens, yeah. John McPhee wrote this wonderful book about it. The Pine Barrens are, are very strictly managed. And one of the management criteria is they can't cut trees. And there is very, very limited prescribed burning in, a fire, in traditionally a fire-adapted landscape, much like ours here. But in the absence of fire, they're having all these endangered species pop up. And they reintroduce fire, these species come back. But the land management body that oversees the Pine Barrens is very resistant to seeing that change because the idea was they're conserving it. And so to manage it is against that ethos. The irony of that is, is what they protected 60, 70 years ago is very different than what it is today. And so if you want to go back to what you protected originally, you actually have to start managing that land. And I think that that takes some reconciliation between what I'm going to characterize as an environmental perspective. And um, I think that this is a problem with a lot of different angles, and you're not going to just solve it by getting a fire scientist to talk about fire behavior, and you're not going to just solve it by getting an ecologist or a wildlife specialist to say what the ideal habitat is, because there's a lot of intertwined pieces here. So it's a very multidisciplinary problem that requires people interacting together from different disciplines to think about, okay, if we believe this is the ecology that's sustainable, what role does fire play in that? And under what conditions would fire have to exist or burn to play that role and then the next question is well how might we get back to that if we're not in that balance you're posing something very interesting which i never thought of which is the distinction between land management and land conservation i always thought those things went together well that's very all the leopold of you i mean that, that they do and i think that, that at some at some point that, that's, that those two things have become divorced. And I think that, that it would be good for this country if they got back together again. And I think that we stop looking at every tree that's cut as a catastrophe. What you were talking about a moment ago, Rod, which is that we need a lot of different kinds of people talking to each other in order to have healthy ecosystems, happy landscapes and firescapes and so on. Are those conversations happening? Those conversations are, are happening I think you could always make the argument that we ought to facilitate them happening to a larger extent, but they are happening. There's some really hard questions there, and people are realizing that you can't always solve one of them in the absence of solving the other problems. An extreme case was at one point somebody said we should stop forest fires because they're bad, and they didn't think about what it did to the rest of the systems. Wildfires are in the news all the time, it seems. And I was doing a search on wildfires in the last couple of years, and I saw a picture of Greenland burning, Greenland being known for being covered with ice, and there were wildfires there. There's wildfires everywhere. There's these NASA world maps of wildfires. And as we know, the temperature rise involved in global climate change is contributing to this. Does it work the other way around, too? In other words, do all the emissions from wildfires that we're seeing everywhere, do they in turn contribute to more climate change? Yeah. Yeah. I think that some components of wildfires contribute to potential global warming, 
but there are also some emissions from wildfires that are the same ones that people worried about decades ago in a nuclear winter scenario. And so it's a complicated interaction. The other thing that we haven't talked about when we talk about wildfires versus prescribed fire is emissions. If we're going to do prescribed fire, you have to think about where the emissions are going. And suddenly we're making choices to put fire on the landscape. And that means if the smoke goes downwind into Santa Fe and impacts people with health problems, they start getting upset because somebody made a choice. With wildfires, people get annoyed and they get frustrated about the smoke, but they sort of realize that that wasn't someone's choice. <laughs> and and the other thing is in a intense wildfire, the smoke tends to get up higher and uh, away from populations to a larger extent, where if you have prescribed fire that's a low-intensity burn, it may not loft the smoke as high. So we're sitting here breathing it. Right. We've covered a lot of subjects today, and uh, it's a lot for people to take in. What should ordinary citizens here in New Mexico, here in the Southwest, our listeners, what should they be thinking about? What is their own role in having healthy forests, healthy ecosystems, and thinking well about fire? I would just ask you to be okay with the smoke in the air. I would just ask you to trust that the people who are, are setting the fires, I mean, just be all right with the smoke from prescribed burns. I know it sucks. It definitely sucks. I don't like it either, but I would rather have that than these super high-intensity fires. I think to go along with what Kyle just said is for people not to get alarmed, especially in the fall in New Mexico, for instance, when they see fire on the landscape, that's very potentially a positive thing for the ecosystem. Be patient with the smoke. But also the other piece of the puzzle is if you live in an area that's in the wildland urban interface, they say, do what you can to make your local environment resilient to fire. Then around your house, there's a lot of guidance you can look up that the Forest Service has and other people have on FireWise and smart protection. Fires are, are going to be a part of the ecosystems and a part of the environment. And you really make it hard if your house is in the middle of an overgrown thicket of trees for them to protect your house and, and you potentially put people in hazard that might come and try to protect your house. Rod Lynn is a senior scientist in the Computational Earth Science Group at Los Alamos National Laboratory. Kyle Dickman is a journalist, author of the book On the Burning Edge. He's a former hotshot firefighter. Thank you both very much for being with us. Thanks. It was fun. Thank you. Appreciate the time. You've been listening to the Radio Cafe Science Edition. I'm your host, Mary Charlotte. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for the show, please email me at mc at radiocafe.media. Please check out our website at scienceradiocafe.org. We're on Twitter at Radio Cafe MC and at facebook.com slash radiocafe. Many thanks to Steady Networks, providing managed IT solutions and computer support for thousands of people in Albuquerque and Santa Fe. You can find out more at steadynetworks.com. And they are part of Dotfoil Computer Services of Santa Fe, where I myself have been bringing my computer for many years, and they are awesome. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.